If you grab your Bibles and turn there with me, with the very end of chapter three this morning, as we see Paul's final words to Titus, um, he uses this sign-off to share a, a couple of last instructions and then really to communicate his affections for his blood-bought brothers and sisters to whom he's writing. Uh, look with me uh, at our passage uh, last week, verse 12 and 13, and then we'll read just after our final passage today, verse 14 and 15. Let's see it all together. When I send Artemis and Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me, Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Do your best to speed Zenus the lawyer and Apollos on their way, seeing that they lack nothing. And let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. All who are with me send greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. In verse 14, Paul says to Titus, let our people learn to devote themselves to good works. This is not Paul's first time emphasizing that God's redeemed people need to be devoted to good works. We saw it in verse 8 of this very chapter, Titus 3, 8. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. Church, we must be devoted, committed, practiced in good works. This is why the Lord gave you and I today, why he woke you and I up to be a light in this dark world, to be a testimony of his grace and love to be a testimony of his amazing power at work within us, to produce good works, something we don't do on our own without Christ, to shine the light of Christ to those in the darkness. Jesus said, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Matthew 5.16 Church, we're given a new day, not just to get through it. If you woke up today, man, I just need to get through the day. Don't miss out on the good purpose of today for you as a redeemed person in God's family, one who is given a testimony to share of the good news of Jesus Christ. We're given a new day, church, to praise the Lord, to exalt his name to testify as good news among those he puts in our paths, to make disciples and raise them up in a new generation. God, God works. Good works is, is why God wakes you and I up to a new day. Listen to Paul's emphasis in Ephesians 2.10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. Church, God has chosen you. He's saved you. He's sent you forth to do good works, to do works that honor him and point others to Jesus. Think about it. This is the higher purpose of your going to work, to labor, for it is not just to make money, but to do good works in that setting. This is the higher purpose, parents, of your parenting. Not more than just raising them unto adults, but to do good works among them. Testify in that way. Church, this is the highest, higher purpose in our vacationing this summer. More than just getting a good tan or relaxing. It is that good works would be on display among those who are not in your normal circles. They would see Jesus, glorify him. Titus 3.14, let our people learn, be practiced, to devote themselves to good works. 
the key word here is good, not just any work will do. Remember the words of John in his third letter, 3 John 11, beloved, do not imitate evil, but imitate good. Whoever does good is from God. Whoever does evil has not seen God. What is good? And most simply, is whatever honors God. Evil is against God. Good is what honors God. God is good. Amen? He's the origin of all that is good, Scripture tells us. Everything that is good comes from God. James says this in James 1.17, every good gift, every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. 1 Timothy 4.4, 4, for everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. Jesus helps us dive deeper when he says the following, Luke 18, 19. No one is good. No one is good but God alone. Jesus' point here is to elevate the rich young ruler's perspective to see that people's best efforts and good deeds pale in comparison to the holy and good God. This is because God is good. We have to see that goodness is his nature. He is the measure, therefore, of what is good. All that is good is, all that God is and does, is perfectly good. And he alone is the final standard of good. King David sings of God's goodness in Psalm 100, verse 5. For the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever. His faithfulness to all generations. Psalm 106, 1, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. Psalm 34, 8 through 10, O taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. O fear the Lord, you his saints. For those who fear him have no lack. The young lion suffers want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. If your heart is constantly looking for and longing for the next thing, the next event, the next encounter, you're probably missing out on the good and perfect gifts of God. Christian, my pastoral encouragement to you is to slow down your exhausting pursuit of the next event or thing in your schedule, and be present in the moment. Because you lack no good thing in Christ. There's so much that can quickly have us troubled, bothered, upset. Why? Because we live in a world that's full of injustice. We live in a world that's full of sin. Right? Even those who belong to Christ are at war with their sin. Right? Galatians 5 is clear to say the works of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit are at war until glory. It's going to be hard. There is much that's not going to go to our plan. But God is so good. If you belong to Him, rest in that. Be grounded in it. Give him praise. If we want to wake up each day and be devoted to good works, then you must be abiding in Christ. Because you will not wake up 
and do this if you are abiding in everything else. You know, when you wake up, what are you quick to plug into? We've talked about the effort sometimes to put the phone farther away from the bed so you wouldn't be tempted to wake up and then plug right into the world, to the social media feed, to the emails. But we would abide in Him. We would rest in Him. We would, we would wake up with purpose for Him. We need to be first consumed with Jesus, only Jesus. His word, talk with him in prayer so that we are abiding in him, grounded in him, and ready for whatever warfare might knock our door down that day. Christian, slow and take some real inventory with me this morning. What are your eyes on? What are you consumed with lately? What has you concerned, worried. The Lord is on the throne. He is at work in all these things. It is our faith that must trust him to walk by faith and not by sight, to abide in him, to be satisfied in him. So therefore motivated to live for him, to do good works, that are not based on others' performance. See, that's how the flesh works. The flesh will work hard when those around you work hard. So we play that game in our marriages. I'll do more when you do. We play that game with our children. Play that game at our workplace. But church, we're not enslaved to the flesh only anymore. We are enslaved to Christ. We are tethered to him. He must be our power, our motivation, our source for good works. Look at what Paul says next. He says, let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and do not be unfruitful. Let's break those down one by one. Paul tells Titus, the church body must do its part. See, the life of the church, the ministry of the church, is not just the job of the shepherds. The shepherds, we who are shepherds, play an important role in this. But Titus can't meet the needs of the believers in Crete alone. Neither can Pastor Steve or Pastor Rob. Neither can a plurality of pastors. No. Church, the reality is we all are a part of the body of Christ. And we all have an important role to play, both formally and daily, according to Scripture. Formally, these are the ministry duties that we're committed to. The ways that we say, I'm a part of the body of Christ, so here's my part that I play to help all this happen. Here's where I serve. And sometimes that changes season to season, but you're committed. You have an oar in your hands and you're helping to row the boat instead of just sit there to, to be an attender, to just receive. You play your part. The ministry teams you serve on or the formal tasks you are committed to help the church work. Help the ministry happen. There's also a daily role we play. A faithful outworking of the fruit of the Spirit to practice the one another's as we spent so much time talking about last week. Church that we would pray for, that we would serve, we would tend to, we would rebuke, we would hold up, we would disciple and meet the practical and urgent needs of one another of the body of Christ. We who belong to Christ must see this as a present, a daily reality. It's an honor to be part of Jesus' bride, his church. Therefore, it's an honor to wake up each day 
ready, willing, looking forward to the opportunity to tend to others in various ways. This is the way we endure together the war we're in and serve our master, hold each other up, to run the long race together, not just the short. Galatians 5.13, For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. You must understand that God has removed our shackles from sin so that we're no longer bound to eternal death, to the wrath of God, to, to sinning only, no. So we can honor the Lord. So we can turn from what our flesh only wants to embrace a new slavery, as Scripture teaches us, a slavery to Christ, a slavery to righteousness. Listen to Paul's words in Romans 6, 19. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, oh, how far we've come by the grace of God. Amen? So now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. Jesus died on the cross to save us from hell. But he didn't die on the cross to save us from the cross. We Christians have to have that in right view so that we don't adopt a version of Christianity that we've spun up but is exactly what the Lord said it would be. I want to be Jesus' committed disciple and follower, not part of any tradition or denomination or family preference. I want to be devoted to Jesus, my master. And what did he say his faithful would do, his disciples would do? That we would take up our cross daily and follow him. To love and to serve, and to give our lives away for those he puts around us. Here, Paul says this in Galatians 6, 2 through 10. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something, when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor, for each will have to bear his own load. Let the one who has taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked, for whatever one sows, that will he also reap. The one who sows in his own flesh will reap from the flesh, reap corruption. The one who sows to the Spirit will reap from the Spirit, reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, especially to those who are in the household of faith. Christian, are you bothered, put out when a brother or sister has an urgent need that you are equipped to help with? Or are you prayed up and primed to meet that need, to be a blessing to them? Romans 12, 13, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Please understand, your family, church, your family, Christian, is not just those in your household. Look around this room. It's a lot bigger than that. And we're blessed for it. And let our people learn to devote themselves to good works. 
so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. Paul's essentially saying here, if you deny being helpful to your brethren's urgent needs, you prove to be unfruitful. Those who are fruitful are those who bear the fruit of the Spirit, those who walk in the light of Christ. Ephesians 5, second part of verse 8 and 9 says, Now you are the light of the world. I'm sorry. Now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. Galatians 5, 22 and 23, the fruit of the Spirit is love, is joy, is peace, is patience, kindness, and goodness, and faithfulness, and gentleness, and self-control. What is unique about the fruit of the Spirit is that they are not things that sin-filled, selfish, fleshly humans do on their own accord. No, if you leave it up to my flesh, I'm going to act a fool. I'm going to do the opposite, right? See, the, the fruit of the flesh is selfishness. It's hate, sadness impatience, meanness, sinfulness, it's unfaithfulness, it's harshness, it's being out of control. Church, we have to understand that people don't grow the fruit of the Spirit. God does. Why? People are not these things naturally. God is. We might put on a good show. We might adopt some habits along the way, put on replicas of these things. But without God, we won't have this kind of character. We won't produce these attributes. This is why they're called the fruit of the Spirit and not the fruit of Josh, right? Or Darren, or Sam, or Kristen. No, our society would say there's a lot of ways you can find love and patience and happiness and peace and self-control. They actually make a lot of money peddling this stuff. Just go to the self-help section of any bookstore. All the books that Oprah's book club have made popular. But all these things are just selling you ex external modifications. But there are manual turns of the steering wheel and you will eventually go back to autopilot. But in Christ, it is no longer who you are. In Christ, he lives in you and the spirits at work through you and your life starts to produce something different. The fruit of the Spirit. Jesus said in John 15, 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing, nothing good. Understand, a Christian does not grow fruit. A, a branch does not grow fruit by itself. Can't. The vine grows its fruit through the branch. Christians don't try to grow fruit. No, 
You must not be focused on trying to be more loving, trying to be more self-controlled. That's what the world tries to do. No, instead, you are given something very essential. You're given Christ. You're given the Spirit. So the growth you are to focus in and on is Him. The growing you need to do is not out. It is in. To abide in Christ. To treasure Christ. To trust Christ. To love Christ. To be sanctified by Christ. And as you cling to Him and trust Him and grow in Him, He will produce in you something new, the fruit of the Spirit. Pastor Tim Keller just finished his race a few weeks ago on May 19th. Once said that we need an organic change through a new inner dynamic, which is God himself not just mechanical compliance through external actions, which is trying to be like him or please him or just acting like a Christian. But we do this. Don't we fall into this where we try to do it better? We wake up and that's the effort of my day. Right? The illustration that I've used over the years to help me see this. There's two ways you can bend metal. You can try to bend it by force, but it seems to always kind of want to bounce back. Or you can heat it internally and then permanently change its shape. We need an internal change to produce something different. Our external efforts won't last. Jesus is that internal change, the Spirit on board and at work. So I must be abiding in Him. Not just plugged in on occasion, like we charge our phones and hope it gets through the day, but constantly abiding, walking in the Spirit, talking with our Lord, meditating on His truths, being surrounded by and accountable to the local church, there's an epidemic problem in Christianity that's frustrating a lot of people right out the door. Many have been taught or have bought into the idea that the Christian life is essentially a bunch of external modifications. And this is a result of many sermons that are just a list of man-made, pragmatic things to do and not do. Surface-level discussions about how one might feel about the passage of Scripture instead of learning what it actually is teaching. Understand this, church. Jesus didn't come to give us a casual experience of a better life now. He came to die for us so that we could die to ourselves and live in Christ every day that He gives us under the sun to mature in faith, producing the good works and the fruit of the Spirit that He does in and through us. We're desperate for him. Paul said it well, Ephesians 4, 15 through 16, rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love to grow up in every way into him, into Christ. Christian growth is into Christ. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. He's saying, I'm the key to that. I'm the true source of this. And... and what a joy it is to see total transformation in so many, right? I love to watch this. I love to watch people who interact with you, the people who only knew the old you, and they're astonished. What is this? What's happening to you? Who are you? 
And this is how a truly selfish person becomes selfless, how a mean person becomes kind, how a whiner becomes filled with joy, how an addict discovers real self and lasting control, how a warrior is filled with peace, how a person who is always trying to control everything can become patient with people. The Holy Spirit will produce this fruit in and through us when we abide in him. Oh, how I pray we're abiding in Christ and therefore living fruitful lives. It is in this then that we're ready to answer the urgent need to produce and be devoted to good works. Look at verse 15 with me. All who are with me send greetings to you, Paul says. The, the blood-bought family that's here sends our love and greeting to you who are there in Crete. And he says, greet those who love us in the faith. Dietrich Bonhoeffer once stressed in one of his writings, the Christian experience is life together with God and Christ and with other believers. This unique community was so strong in Christ's day as Christ walked with the disciples. And then it was carried forth by the early church as we see in marvelous passages like Acts 2, 44-47, all who believed were together. They had things in common. They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. The Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. This life together, this, this bond a real fight of our flesh, the things that want to separate, the things that want to make us complain, the things that want to divide us. So that's the testament of that early church. In Acts, a few decades later, Paul finishes writing this very epistle to Titus. And we see the same pattern commended to continue among the saved saints. And my prayer is that it continues among us today as well. Paul wants Titus to express his love in Christ for the redeemed family who's with him. When he says send greetings, he's simply saying express the love of God that we all know and enjoy with each other. I'm going to uh, travel with my brother Mike next week and our two graduate sons. Um, and we are going to worship at another brother's church Sunday morning in Orange. He's actually going to come preach for you later this summer in August. Faithful brother I know all the way back to my home church. Um, he's going to get his own pulpit filled to come be a blessing to you. I'm excited for that. But when I'm there, I believe I'm going to be invited to send greetings to them from you. This is not a practice that stopped here, the practice that needs to continue. Because we love each other in the body of Christ. We are a family. The family is not just Disciples Church. It is the blood-bought brothers and sisters of Christ. Here's how Paul concluded his letter to the church in Ephesus, Ephesians 6, 23. Peace be to the brothers and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. See how similar that is to how this letter is finished. There's a speaking of love that is grounded in faith, grounded in the Lord, in the faith is what we see. It's the same love that is shared in Ephesians, the same love that's communicated to Titus here in our letter. Church, we, 
We want the love of God. Not only to know it, but to have it be at work in us, to each other. Any source of love in our life that's found in anything other than God is counterfeit. It's, it's second rate. It's a distant second. Just let the love of God for you, the elect, the, the, the redeemed ones, let it wash over you. Hear Paul's words to the Ephesians in the, in the opening chapter, chapter one, four through five, speaking of these high truths. He chose us, God chose us in him, in Christ, before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Christ Jesus, according to the purpose of his will. In love, he predestined us, meaning inspired by God's eternal love, our redeemed destiny, destiny was decided before we were even created. For those who are his elect, those of us for whom Christ died, we are loved unconditionally before time began. Think about that, Christian. God's love is set on you, not recently, not haphazardly, not because of your great performance or lack thereof, not out of pity for you, but before you did anything good or bad, before you breathed your first breath, before all creation was made, he set out to destine us to salvation, to be part of his eternal family. Oh, how loved you are, church. Ephesians 2, 4 through 5, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. What is, what is so amazing about God's love for us is when we slow to consider the absolute deplorable depravity of our condition, rightly deserving his wrath, his judgment, See with me that our salvation was not a turning or a doing of, doing of our own, but of God alone. It was not of us because we could not do it. We could not save ourselves. We were dead in our sin, enslaved to our sin. Dead people don't resurrect themselves. It was not others who saved us. No one else saved us, for they could not offer what was necessary. They could not revive us or remove our guilt of sin. No, only God could do this. The good news is that while God would have been completely 100% right to just wipe us all out, convict and condemn every one of us in our sin, he chose not to. Instead of righteous wrath be poured out on all, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit chose in love to pour out mercy on many of us undeserving sinners. But God. Did you hear Misty share it in her testimony last week? Misty Jones, um, unsaved wife and mother of two of our members, sister to one of our members, someone we prayed for for six years. Pleaded with God, wondered if it might be his will to save her as well. Says she wanted nothing to do with it. But for six years she came and listened. And in God's time, He gave her saving faith. And last week, before being baptized, she said, Not me, despite me, but God. Look what God did. 
These words need to knock us over, church. These, these words need to, need to plow into you and through you when you're giving way too much credit to whatever's going on around you. To see who you are to God. To know that love that we have in Him. Feel the weight of your condition and sin and no one noticed anything, especially God, but oh, how He loved us. Church, we must know how loved you are by God. Remember those, those words in 1 John 4, 9 and 10, in this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation of our sin. To know real love, you must know God. To know God, you must be spiritually awakened by God to give you a true conviction and repentance of your sin before him and an utter submission and trust to Jesus, not only to be your Savior, but to rule your life as, his, as your Lord. If you've not done this, if this is not you, I, I pray that Today might be that appointed day for you. When the gospel comes into view, the grace of God, the love of God, in a way you just have not seen or understood it before. The movement of the Spirit to give you new birth. Repent and believe and be saved. Share that with someone. We rejoice with you. Begin a new journey with you. God's eternal and perfect love was always on us, church, the entire time. And so when we read, all who are with me send greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Don't let that just fly by. Slow down and bathe in it and understand it what that love is about, because it is a very special and definite love of God that he's given us who are in the faith. Amen? Finally, Titus 3.15, all who are with me send greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. What a perfect way to finish this sermon series in Titus. How important grace is for our lives. If we miss the measure of God's grace, we miss the power of the gospel, the wonder of what God has done. Grace simply defined as unmerited favor, an undeserved gift from an, an unobligated giver. What we deserved was death. The wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Romans 6.23 God's not obligated to give us his saving grace. And we're not deserving to receive it. But that's why it's grace. The Bible does not approach the subject of saving grace from the perspective that everyone's entitled to a chance. Like in our American system, we like to apply to this, right? Democracy makes for a wonderful system of government. Everyone has a vote, everyone's equal before the law. That in order to be fair, everyone should have equal chance to participate in the process. This is a good thing. God, however, is not democratic. He does not operate according to our American democratic ideals. You need to hear this today. As soon as you introduce a doctrine of fairness, we introduce a standard by which God has to save all, or at least give everyone an equal chance to be saved. This is simply not grace. What is truly fair and holy and righteous is for the judge to render a verdict of guilty for unrepentant sinners. It is grace that's unfair. 
But praise God, his saving grace is just. Because Christ in his substitutionary work on our behalf perfectly met God's justice by paying the price our sin was due. Problem today, large numbers of people, even many evangelicals, ignorantly or arrogantly undermine and effectively destroy the doctrine of saving grace by supposing that human beings are basically good, capable of making good choices, apart from God's gracious intervention. If grace were obligated to be gracious, if God were obligated to be gracious, grace would no longer be grace. Salvation would be based on human merit rather than God's grace alone. We add anything to grace, we deny grace altogether. This is Paul's point in 11, Romans 11.6. If it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. God saves by grace alone, through faith alone, on the account of Christ alone. Praise God. Saving grace is amazing. We must never lose sight of the power and the wonder of God's grace in our lives. So you would remain grateful. This is why we worship Him. It, it, the constant reminder of God's grace is such a help to us. It's why Paul opens the letter with it and closes the letter with it and bays the letter in the letter in it again and again and again. If you know me, if you've <clears throat> received emails from me, I effort to do this as well with the phrase by his grace and for his glory. I truly feel that we who are saved by Christ, who belong to God, we must see that all of our life, everything we do, everything we are able to do is by God's grace and is to be done for God's glory. We have nothing without the grace of God. Nothing good. So hear it again. All who are with me send greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace. Grace be with you all. Paul agrees. What an amazing experience it's been to preach this letter over the last 18 weeks. Um, I pray that God's at work in you mightily. Um, I'm excited to see what these truths do in our lives as we go forward. I'm thankful that you long to not just be hearers, but doers of God's word. Uh, that you're not looking to stay the way you are, but you want to grow and mature in Christ. To serve him until he takes you home. Church, let's stay rooted in growing in sound doctrine so that we continue in sound faith. As we've efforted to do over these past months. I join Paul in praying that you deeply know the love of God because of the amazing grace of God and that it changes and motivates your daily living, serving. You do this for his great glory and for others, good. Pray with me. Father, we are very grateful to have had this time together over these last months to journey through this important letter, Holy Scripture, that you've given us, that you've ordained. Your revelation is amazing. It's so helpful. It's convicting us and, and teaching us and moving us under the things that honor you. And I pray it would continue to do so, that we would, as wrinkled as our pages are, as filled with, with notes that they are, that, that we would be blessed to return to this letter for many months and years to come to equip and empower our journey for you. Thankful for the work you've done and pray that we would respond with continual faith, 
perseverance, steadfastness, and these things, the fruitful good works you've given us to do for your glory. We love you and pray confidently because of Christ. Amen. We're going to turn now to a time of testimony, corporate testimony with the physical symbols of the Lord's Supper. Consider with me John's Gospel, chapter 13, church, 1 through 16. Before the feast of the Passover, Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world. He loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it in the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, he had come from God and was going back to God. He rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments. Taking a towel, he tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Said to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered, what I'm doing, you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you will have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet. But it's completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That is why he said, not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet, he put on his outer garments and resumed his place and said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right. For so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them.